Well, uh, welcome. Um, you guys are the remnant of this day. It's been a long day. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, I was asked to, um, to present, I remember the morphing of the title of my presentation. Initially, it was suggested that it was, uh, that I would speak, that the title of my presentation would be Third World, or uh, uh, U.S.-based dental solutions for uh, third world disaster relief uh, problems. And I thought, what is that? Uh, so I backpedaled a little bit and I collected the, the brief experience in disaster relief that I have. And I said, how about we do a little, uh, a little more all-inclusive type presentation for not just dentists, but, but just healthcare providers in general. Uh, because in a disaster relief situation, we all kind of fall into the same, uh, under the same umbrella. Um, <clears throat> so this is my presentation, and you'll find that um, <clears throat> as much as I tried to make this presentation um, non-anecdotal, there's going to be a lot of anecdotes. When you look for, uh, when you look through the, the through PubMed for articles on disaster relief and healthcare providers, uh, there are a, a, a decent amount, not very many, there's a decent amount. But when you go through the articles and, and the journals, um, a lot of them are anecdotal. Why? Well, because um, disasters come with so many different variables. Uh, this one was a hurricane, this, was when, this one was an earthquake, this one was a massive fire. Um, and, and so it's hard to develop studies um, studies that uh, where you can draw any significant uh, information from. However, there are some similarities between all uh, disasters that you can compile. And that's what I've kind of tried to do for you this afternoon. Um, so if you'd bow your heads with me, <clears throat> we'll get started with a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the opportunity again to uh, receive your Sabbath, which is soon on coming in uh, the company of like-minded uh, brothers and sisters who want to take their, uh, their careers, Father, dedicate them uh, to your service. And I ask uh, that you be with me and that um, as I open my mouth, that they be your words, not mine, um, that we might be edified and in, uh, in this regard and we might be able to serve your children better. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> I'm comforted because I see some of uh, my fellow travel mates from back in, uh, in, in, in February when we actually went to Haiti. Um, <clears throat> I believe that some of the biggest travesties that have, that have been um, performed in, uh, in public speaking situations is when the, the, the speaker is not familiar with his audience. So, would you agree? <laughs> so, my question for you this, this afternoon is, other than Katrina and Haiti, how many of you have been involved in a disaster relief situation? Where, where, ma'am? San Antonio, after um, it was uh, the Hurricane Katrina, and then the Hurricane Katrina hit Haiti, and then we had the Hurricane Friday night, but we were listening to, to the TV because we wanted to be sure what was going on 
young mother wives, and they, and <coughs> they needed help in the gymnasium giving out food to people that were, hundreds of people that were um, in a disaster situation in a mm. gymnasium. Okay. So we volunteered to go on Sabbath, and we went and had a big blessing. Good, good. Any others? How about, uh, how many of you were involved in the Haiti disaster relief? Raise your hand. One, two, anyone else? <coughs> well, <coughs> I was also involved in the Haiti uh, disaster relief. Um, but I just wanted to kind of start out and, and share with you some of the organizations that are involved in this uh, uh perpetually or constantly. Obviously at the governmental level you have FEMA. Um, Non-governmental, which is also nicknamed NGO, is the acronym. We have, <clears throat> I just wanted to list some of the few that are, that are within our, um, our denomination. Um, I thought it was great because when I actually Googled or I searched uh, disaster relief, uh, NGOs or non-governmental uh, disaster relief organizations, I hit enter, and then, you know, the first, the, the first ones I saw was ACS, you know, ACTS, and ADRA, and I was like, yeah, we are at the top, but it's because we start with A. So, uh, I thought, I thought that was great. I was like, Adventists, we're at the forefront of this thing, you know, and it's just because it was alphabetically listed, so, um, <clears throat> ACS, ACTS World Relief, so these are, these are Adventist organizations or affili Adventist-affiliated uh, organizations, Loma Linda University, and wh what I learned when I went to um, to Haiti was, you know, it kind of restored my faith in mankind. You know, people in general they want to help. When this thing went down and, and you landed in in the airport uh, in Haiti, you realize that you're not you, you don't have an original idea to go and help. It's not yours. All of the world was in Haiti. Every disaster relief humanitarian agency, church, or organization or group, everyone was there and they were willing to help and wanting to help. And that was comforting for me. You know, I believe, I believe that the heart of man is generally good and, and that, that's good for us as a denomination too because, you know, people uh, eventually will, will hopefully do the right thing uh, when presented with truth. ACS or Adventist Community Services, it receives, processes, and distributes clothing, bedding, and food products in major disasters. The agency brings in mobile distribution units filled with bedding and packaged clothing that is pre-sorted according to size, age, and gender. ACS also provides emergency food and counseling and participates in cooperative disaster child program. Axe World Relief <clears throat> um, is an affiliate of our church, um, not directly under our church, but... Um, its leadership is primarily Adventist through a nationwide network of healthcare prof professionals. It acts, uh, has teams to provide inoculations and first response healthcare um, with dedicated all-terrain four-wheel vehicle medical support and response vehicles, expandable semi-trailers and canvas shelters. Acts has the resources to set up a field medical facility that can provide for the area for area support and this organization uh, was largely uh, used or we teamed up with a, uh, as a men we teamed up with acts in a large way a lot of our membership went uh, to, to, to buttress the uh, support or the effort that acts was putting forth in Haiti yes sir what does the acronym stand for 
Um, action. Uh, it's not the A is not Adventist, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, it's, uh, it's action now. Okay. Yeah. Um, community. Uh, I don't remember. Team services. team services. Yeah, action community team services. And they actually have uh, uh, David Cantor is is there. He's a Adventist pastor. He is actually. Um, they've cemented that organization. Uh, pretty successfully in the eyes of, or, or in, the, uh, in the face of the government and FEMA, they're well recognized and uh, they have a, a pretty good uh, support uh, base. <clears throat> Axe World Relief is a NIMS or a National Incident Management System compliant disaster response agency able to respond within 24 hours of federally declared incidents utilizing its volunteer army of everyone. Provide and they also provide humanitarian services by utilizing uh, their fleet of trucks. Obviously, I copy and pasted this thing. Forklifts, heavy equipment, refrigeration, uh, trailers, mobile commercial kitchens, tents, and support equipment. Then there's ADRA, of course. We're uh, very familiar with, uh, with this agency that does fall within our denomination or under the umbrella of our denomination. And in the wake of emergencies such as famines, floods, and earthquakes, uh, there are Often thousands of people needing basic necessities. ADRO works to get them back on their feet again by not only responding quickly, but following up with long-term support. And, you know, <clears throat> that's, that's probably the biggest um, shortcoming about disaster relief that we have to face, that we have to deal with. It's being there after the hype has died down. And I'll touch, I'll hit this over and over and over again. Disaster relief comes with it a, a feeling, a high, kind of an emotional high. And then after the hype is gone, people forget um, and the problem still kind of persists there. ADRA works to prevent further loss of life by responding quickly to evaluate the greatest needs and then developing plans to get help to the areas where it is needed most. Often ADRA coordinates with local governments to provide medical care, food, water, and shelter to victims of tragedies. So they were there, they were in Haiti, uh, helping with the uh, restoration of infrastructure damage. Loma Linda University uh, was also involved in Haiti, chiefly because um, this is a hospital. The, the, the hospital there in Port-au-Prince is, uh, is under the direction of Loma Linda University, so they take personal vested interest in that particular disaster. Um, <clears throat> however, um, if you're interested in working through, and again, I listed these agencies first because um, obviously, as an organization, the best thing to do is kind of come together uh, as a you know single-minded group. Um, to to that's why I put these these lists of, of organizations within or affiliated with our organ with our denomination um, that I would hope that you would choose to work with um, before uh, going to other NGOs. Certainly, it wouldn't you know be all whatever. Uh, you could still work in, with other NGOs as well. Uh, but these are our, our organizations that we try and, and work through. Loma Linda University, the best thing to do is contact School of Public Health or the Medical Center directly to see if, <coughs> excuse me, if they're involved with any particular disaster. So, you know, Matthew 24 tells us that there are more disasters to come, right? Um, and, we, and we anticipated. I remember when, when Haiti happened, our, our missions uh, coordinator um, called me up and said, uh, Carlos, do you not see the prophetic footprint here? You know, this is, this is prophetic. What has happened here is huge. And it was huge. But I thought to myself, wait, 
Um, I believe that, you know, we have to see the big picture here. And just weeks after, we had the Chile earth. Was it Chile? Yes. We had the Chile earthquake in, in the same magnitude, or if not a little more. They just had better infrastructure. That's why they had less damage. So there are going to be disasters, right? <clears throat> I remember this particular graph going throughout the Internet and Facebook with a hot buzz. It's a USGS Worldwide Deadly and Destructive Earthquakes graph between the magnitude of 6 and 8. And uh, you can, if you can't see from back here, this is 1900. And then this is 2008. So this doesn't even include Haiti, right? And so the interesting thing is you're relatively cruising along here and then you see the spike to where we are. And I remember thinking, this is awesome. This is great. This is, we're at the end, people. This is it, you know? But you also have to, you know, then reality sets in. You do a little more studying, a little more investigation, and you realize they didn't have the seismo uh, seismologic equipment that they have here, or here, or here, or here. Now we have media. Now we have every single earthquake being reported because we do have the equipment. We do have the technology to report everything. So you got to kind of take that into account as well. <clears throat> So when you look at the cycle of disaster response, we as an organization, at least amen, as healthcare providers are not involved directly in the mitigation and prevention and the preparedness necessarily, prediction and early warning, but somewhere right here in this area, we become involved. Uh, or at least we like to think we, this is where we step in as healthcare providers. This is where we can step in. Disaster. Disaster strikes. <clears throat> Ideally, impact assessment happens. There's a coordinated response. There's a recovery. And hopefully there'd be a reconstruction. But somewhere along the line, you'll see here, and I'll show you, we sometimes forget and we fall off. Okay, because we did our thing right here, and our practice requires our efforts back at home. So you can't, you can't stay where the disaster is to bring it through its complete cycle. So, <clears throat> this is my very brief experience in Haiti. Haiti earthquake, January 2010. I had the opportunity to go two weeks after, um, which for particularly, and I, I say this for a reason, my specialty is oral and maxillofacial surgery or facial trauma, okay? So I was thinking, yes, I'm going to find some people with some crushed faces. I'm going to do surgery. I'm going to, you know, make them look uh, the way they looked before surgery. So, or before, yeah, before they, uh, before they had their accent, not before surgery. You know. <laughs> so, so <clears throat> I'm going to make them look like they looked before they had their trauma. Uh, so I was excited to go, and so we, we, um, I, I got to, interesting thing is, um, <clears throat> I was on the AMEN Media Committee, and I had been on, serving on that committee for some time, uh, or subcommittee, and, and then uh, I got a call sometime in January from, uh, from Phil Mills, who said, Carlos, hey, you know, um, Dr. Catalano, who's still, who's still an AMEN member, uh, has to step down uh, from from the missions position, uh, and we were wondering if you'd be interested in considering Amen Missions. 
as a, as, as a, a position or director of Amen Missions. And I said, well, you know, I've always, I love missions, love going on mission trips and things like that. I said, sure, I'll do it. Two days later, Haiti happens, and I thought to myself, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean for me? And I was like, this is all a setup by Dr. Catalano. <laughs> Somehow knew this was going to happen. So uh, I, we had to very quickly, as a men, as, a, as an organization, we had to decide what is our role as, uh, as healthcare providers in a disaster relief. Because this is not in our mission statement. And yet we stand in a very, very pivotal uh, spot in a strategic area where all of us can actually participate, help uh, in, in a, a disaster relief situation. So trial by fire the next three weeks, uh, trying to figure out how to recruit, how to, how to inspire uh, AMEN members to go to Haiti, to be involved. It was, uh, it was quite an experience, but we learned there were some growing pains there, significant growing pains. The biggest growing pain was me getting on this DC-3 tail, uh, tail dragger where you can look right into the cockpit. Um, the stuff that I didn't need to know, I was scared to death on this thing. You know, I was like, are we even going to get there? Um, you could see rain pouring into the cockpit, you know, and you had the, the pilot had his hand on the throttle, couldn't take his hand off because if he took the hand, his hand off, the throttle automatically would, would, uh, would pull back and he would lose thrust. So he had to keep his hand on there, and if he had to pull his hand off, he would tell the co-pilot, hey, put your hand on there, and then he'd slide his hand off. It was more information than I needed, you know, essentially. So praise God, we made it to Haiti. It was quite, uh, quite an experience. <clears throat> and there are lessons here that I want to tell you about. Port-au-Prince, by and large, did not look like this. And this is my experience. By and large, Port-au-Prince did not look like this. There were spots that did look like this, but by and large, a lot of the structure was still standing, but who would go back into their homes when there's a risk of an aftershock taking their home down to look like this? So that's why the people were in the streets or living in tents, okay? So there was still a lot of infrastructure that was intact, okay? But the media is not gonna show you that because they want you to get the impact of the disaster. <clears throat> Dr. Candy Jorateg was, this is David Cantor, the president of ACTS. Um, Candy Jorateg was our trip leader, and I went with Naren James. Uh, Candy Jorateg, and I want to tell you, this, this, this is an example that each one of you um, have influence. Each one of you have influence in a situation, not just a disaster situation. You have more influence than, than you're aware of. This young lady <clears throat> got on the airway, on the radio, on the TV, contacted all of her colleagues. She raised $100,000 in a matter of weeks for the effort here in Haiti. And um, I believe that there is a prosthetics lab that um, she helped to, uh, to set up with her father, who's an orthopedic surgeon. She is a family practice doc, and she was our trip leader, real type A personality, you know, go-getter. Um, she was our trip leader and quite an inspiration, you know. When, when I found out that she wrote, raised 100 grand, you know, in, in a matter of weeks, I was like, and all she did was use her sphere of influence in small northern California town, you know. Um, <clears throat> we lived in tents, preparedness. When you go, forget about luxury, set that aside. 
um, you're going, you're going not for yourself. All those tents we left. When we left Haiti, we left everything. <clears throat> this is how you gas up the truck in Haiti. Not always, but usually. We set, uh, set up a primary health clinic across the street from the hospital to relieve to, as kind of an outlet for primary care patients, okay? So here I am, a dentist. At that time, I was an oral surgeon, um, and, um, and I still am. But at that time, I was an oral surgeon, and there was nothing for me to do. Everyone that had maxillofacial trauma had either succumbed to their injuries or had been repaired already. I was two weeks out at that point had succumbed to their injuries or had been treated by some other uh, surgeon at another facility. So what was I going to do? These are questions I had to deal with. So I helped <clears throat> with the rest of the group set up a primary health clinic just across the street so that all the urgencies or the, you know, the doctors could be free to, to treat some of these amputations that got infected. Uh, anything that might be surgically urgent, it could go to the hospital and they wouldn't be encumbered by people with belly pain or headaches or things like that. <clears throat> little boy, little toy. This is kind of how they entertain themselves. Uh, the campus of the Adventist University became uh, an outlet for a lot of these, uh, a lot of these people who just didn't want to go home. A lot of them still had home standing, um, but um, they uh, they went to the Adventist University, and there was essentially twenty thousand people with tents everywhere. It was like tent city there. Um, so there were definitely issues that were going to arise and have eventually, uh, uh, you know, come to, to uh, their full fruition, uh, especially with the, the recent outbreaks they've had there. <coughs> I show this picture because uh, I want you to know that everybody was involved, you know. This is Chefs Without Borders, kind of a knockoff from uh, Doctors Without Borders. Chefs Without Borders that were that took over the, the cooking situation in the hospital so that all the volunteers had uh, U.S. level um, uh, or quality food and no one would get sick. This is an organization in Southern California and Central California, um, a very, very deep pocketed uh, organization. The Supreme Master Chai Hing is a lady, a prophetess, who believes, who's very humanitarian and believes in in, uh, in restoring in vegetarianism and in, in, in keeping and restoring the world and saving the world uh, through hum humanitarian efforts. They were there. They were involved. Um, <clears throat> Samaritan's Purse, which is an organization that's led out by Billy Graham's son. Um, they were there at the Adventist, Haas, at the Adventist uh, University siphoning f uh, water from this large pool, which had inlets from uh, an artesian spring. Um, and they would purify the water and provide it for all those people uh, in, in Tent City right there on the campus of the Adventist University. So I'm just showing you how many people were involved. I mean, it's not an original idea that we go <clears throat> and, and provide relief. This is the Artesian Spring. So, so I was telling you, what do I do? I, as a dentist, pulled teeth for two days. And I had patients, you know, a guy would come, I'd pull a tooth, and then... He just, I'd give him some Tylenol, he'd come back the next day and point to another tooth. And I would look at it and say, yeah, that one's bad too, it needs to come out. So I'd take that out and he'd put his hand out. And I'd say, I gave you 20 of them yesterday. And he'd be like, they're gone. And so I knew that he was taking them and going outside and selling them. And, you know, the need was deeper than what I was thinking. 
you know and so I had to kind of alter my tech my my way of treatment so I decided not to I wanted to do something a little more long term so I decided to lay PVC pipe the hospital had run out <clears throat> this is the hospital over here all of their cisterns went empty there was no m municipal water supply they had nothing so I just went with a group me Candy uh, Joratag and her and her father and a group of us and volunteers local we just started laying PVC pipe all of this was feces infested swamp area uh, behind the hospital. We trekked all the way through that and sealed this thing. We went all the way behind the Adventist University about two miles up, up, uh, uphill to this artesian spring that was feeding the pool and all the other 20,000 uh, refugees on the campus of the Adventist University. <clears throat> we tapped that water supply and we filled the cisterns. Praise God. I felt like that was... That was the most, uh, you know, significant thing I did when I was there. It wasn't taking out teeth, you know. So the thing is, I'm telling you that because you got to be open-minded when you go to a disaster scenario. Not just, I'm going to do my specialty. This is what I do. I can't, I can't do anything else. You know, if you're open to, to, to see, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? How do I, how do I uh, provide for, for the need here that's a little more, even if it's beyond your spectrum of, of care or your training? So this is the crew that laid pipe, and it was, it was quite a glorious thing when that water, when you saw that water start trickling through and filling up the cistern or the, or the tanks of the reserve at the hospital. Uh, this is a scene in, in, the, um, in the town. This is a food market, and it smelled like something else, not like a food market. Uh, trip number two, which was under the leadership of uh, Dr. Catalano here. Um, and I hope I got the name right, Ladique Matthew. It was a little bit north, um, and this time, this was a month later. Uh, so <clears throat> the need is still there. I mean, the need uh, is still there today. Uh, I remember when we pulled up, um, I, had, I had a couple, a couple uh, that had, this was their first missionary trip, and they had in mind that this was a missionary trip. There's a difference, and I'm going to delineate this very clearly. There's a difference between disaster relief and missionary trips, okay? And, and I remember they were videotaping and saying, oh, wow, look at all the, 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 the rubble. Look at all the rubble. And she was, you know, pretty much filming all of these, uh, these outflows of water, waterways that were full of trash. And she was videotaping the trash, saying that this was rubble from the earthquake. And I said, sister, that's not, that's not rubble from the, from, from the earthquake. That's trash. That's been there forever. And, you know, the reality kind of set in. Oh, my goodness. This is, this, there was a disaster before the earthquake. Okay? And it was a long, perpetual disaster. Um, uh, <laughs> I decided, yes? Um, with all the disaster relief organizations that came to Haiti and are still going and the money that went into and was pledged and everything. Why is there still now a break on the cholera there? And in, in, in a situation where, I mean, from your perspective, what, what would you think the, is that money not getting to where it needs to get to? People aren't being, I mean, what, what's the problem? Leadership. You, you, need, you need an honest government. You know, it, it, you know, and again, I'm saying this, I don't know all the intricacies, but I believe that it starts with leadership. And this, you're not going to fix in a few months the profound, what they're fixing now are, are, you know, things that were just complicated by the earthquake. 
you know there was believe I actually heard some of the uh, some of the victims say yeah I lost an uncle or I lost a brother or I lost um, someone a family member to this earthquake but look at all the attention we're getting now and I thought to myself where do you have to be to be okay with losing a family member so that you could get your needs your primary needs taken you have to be pretty desperate to say something like that and so um, I, I would say that, it, that it's leadership, you know, um, and it's going to take years to fix what years developed, you know. Um, I, I remember I thought it was a great idea. Oh, let me just make some, uh, some balloons for the kids. And, you know, I, I go to Bangladesh every year. I go to some other place. I make balloons for them. They get in a straight line, and each one gets their balloon and walks. I was, I, I have a picture here. This is my mom thought my mom thought I was just oh I was going to pick up all these little kids. I have my arms up because if they come down, they start pulling out my arm hairs because they want a balloon. And and it was so and, and I thought to myself, this was probably a bad idea that I started I started making balloons because it was so it was so intense that they needed that balloon that if they didn't get that balloon, they were going to die. It was like food, and I thought, okay, this is a bad idea. So I have to start think, rethinking, what is the need? How do I supply that need? It's not a toy, you know? It's, it's, something, it's something much deeper than that. <clears throat> this little boy, happy, he thinks all the problems are resolved now, as soon as he got his balloon. This is, a, we eventually, remember Dr. Callahan, we got in a truck and we started blowing the balloons up in the truck and throwing them out through the back because if we stopped, we would just get mobbed. So we would just, and of course this was survival of the fittest, we were just trying to give the kids something to laugh with, to, to play with for a split, just to kind of take their mind off of, off of uh, all the, that they had been through. This is a voodoo house, it was empty, it was a guy in there cracking wood, nothing really going on. Um, <clears throat> again, some of the scenes. Um, you know, there's a lot of animals around. There's probably more goat dung on the floor. Uh, when we went to um, village 80, 87, um, there was more goat dung on the floor. There, there was no place you could step that there wasn't goat dung. And so I'm thinking, there's kids here running around. There's, I mean, it, I mean, there's a public health, you know, project there that spanned several years, I'm sure. This is one of the clinics we established in village 87. Um, and again, you know, you do what you can, but I was just feeling like, okay, I'm here. This is my trade. Let me do something. But all the, all, all the while I'm going, these people need more than this, you know, they need more than a tooth pulled. So, you know, in a disaster relief situation, <clears throat> you know, when I, when I would look at these patients, I would think to myself, these people are, are, are messed up. You know, they're, they're, they're lost. Um, the need is so profound that it's that they're lost, and so um, when I when I look at this quote by John Bradford, uh, an English reformer and martyr, best remembered for his utterance there, but for the grace of God goes John Bradford, and, and these are words where that he uttered when when Bradford by Bradford while imprisoned in the Tower of London when he saw a criminal on his way to execution. Do we really understand our condition? And so this is why to me missions. And now disaster relief is, is so profound because when I go over there, the, the needs, the physical needs, the, basic, the basics of life needs, um, while they might be physical for the people I'm going to help, 
when I think about myself, I come back here to lush, um, I got water, I have all my needs met. What are, what are, what is my condition? My spiritual condition is what my concern is when I have everything provided. And so <clears throat> we have a counsel about, about reaching, uh, reaching those that are in need. And these are some of the more, uh, more, the better known, you know, it is a, it is to be a great entering wedge thereby whereby the diseased soul may be reached. In new fields, no work is so successful as medical missionary work. Medical missionary work is to bear the same relation to work of the third angel, uh, the third angel's message that, uh, that the arm and hand bear to the body. The monotony of our service for God needs to be broken up. Every church member, I love that, the monotony of our service. There is nothing that breaks up the monotony of your service, like getting out of your comfort zone and, and getting really uncomfortable in, in, in for the sake of someone else. The monotony of our service for God needs to be broken up. Every church member should be engaged in some line of medical missionary service for the master. And God reaches hearts through relief of physical suffering. And sometimes it's your very own heart. Amen? I mean, that deserves an amen. You know what I mean? I, I think uh, um, just th- through, through missionary work, I was rebaptized a year ago. And so sometimes when you're out there and you realize that through teaching, the, uh, through helping these individuals out who are in such need, that you are in such need. Um, but your need is a little bit different, you know? And that's when God says, I got you. So the goal of medical missionary work uh, is to relieve human suffering. And by doing so, you create inroads to the soul. And by doing so, you introduce the victim to who? Jesus. To Jesus. Now, the above mathematical equation takes a little longer to develop in a, in a disaster scenario. And this is where I want to kind of draw the line of distinction. This is not a mission trip. Mission work. Number one, the need is somewhat controlled. Number one, disaster relief work. Pre-existing need becomes profound. And I, by, by way of example, I remember a kid, uh, a kid telling me, I, I just met this kid and he says, where are my shoes? Where are my shoes? And I thought, where'd you leave them? I don't know where his shoes are. I didn't bring them. But he was like eight years old with so much assertion, so much... Additionally, I remember um, um, uh, going to an evangelistic meeting um, where a brother here was was preaching, and I sat down. The place was full, and I sat down next to a young man, and I was I was very quiet. I was actually yeah. I sat down next to him. He had his Bible open, and um, and he was he was listening intently to to Dr. Thompson as he as he preached. Just, he was maybe 15 years old, just listening and taking notes and writing. And I was like, praise God, you know, even amidst all of this stuff, I mean, there's people that's still searching, but the need is still there. The physical need is still there. And so I sat and I I looked at him and I I would try not to be too, too deliberate, but I reached in my pocket and I pulled out $2. That's all I had in my pocket. And when he, when he took a break and looked away, I grabbed his Bible and I pulled it over to me very slowly. And he looked back. He didn't notice his Bible was gone. 
I took the dollar, the two dollars under my hand and slipped them in, into the Bible, slid them back to him. And I keep listening. And he saw me actually slide it back to him. And so he opens to where he was and he sees the two dollars. And he looks at me and he says, more. And I thought to myself, I ought to take that money back. <laughs> I just, but I wasn't thinking. The need is not two dollars. The need is so profound, is so profound, and yet I, I had the mindset of I was on a mission trip. I wasn't on disaster relief. Do you understand kind of the, the difference? The need is so deep. Two, sometimes spiritual theme, uh, in, in mission work, spiritual themes can be introduced right at the outset. And, and, and spiritual themes, you can try, but sometimes, like in this kid, I feel like sometimes they're there because they're, they're feeling that there's going to be a handout after the speaker. So you, you, and you can't, you can't be negative towards that because the need is still there. And so, you know, it shouldn't keep you from presenting spiritual themes as long as you understand it's sometimes not at the forefront of the victim's mind. Mission work. <clears throat> Number three, the most humble, uh, so you're often working with very humble spirited people who put in work before you got there, you know, and brought people to the clinic, brought people to the evangelistic crusades. Um, and in and, and disaster relief work, you get a lot of opportunists that emerge, a sense of entitlement, aggressive behavior. Um, and, and, you, and again, you have to be sensitive to that. You just can't go over there and say, who do these people think they are? No, there's need. There's need there. That's why. And number four, of course, <clears throat> often there's organized communication. And in disaster relief, there is often chaos. In a disaster, everyone wants to go. We talked about this. Many individuals, many governmental and NGOs involved. I remember when I was leaving, when I was <coughs> leaving Haiti, I remember seeing helicopters and planes and from every country you can imagine. The airport was full of just uh, so many other church uh, organizations and NGOs that were there. I highlighted this, logistics and communications chaos, because this is one of probably the, the most, the most, the biggest challenge that you have in a disaster situation. And I don't think that's my only, sen uh, that sentiment is only mine. Um, <clears throat> this is a, an article uh, written in the American Journal of Disaster Medicine. Um, <clears throat> the international response to the 2004 Southeast Asia tsunami was noted to have multiple areas of poor coordination. And in 2005, the health cluster approach to, co uh, to coordination was formulated. Well, that's wonderful. That's great. Well, what's a cluster? Well, a cluster is a group of agencies, organizations, and or institutions working together towards a common objective, right? To, to address the needs in a particular sec sector, such as health. Cluster is essentially a sectoral group, and there should be no differentiation between the two terms of their objectives and, act and activities. The aim of filling gaps and ensuring adequate preparedness and response should be the same. What's a cluster approach? A cluster approach is a way of organizing, coordinating, and cooperating among humanitarian actors to facilitate joint strategic planning. At country level, it, number one, establishes a clear system of leadership and accountability for international response in each sector and under, uh, under the overall leadership of the humanitarian coordinator. And two, it provides a framework for effective partnerships among international and national humanitarian actors in each sector. <clears throat> the aim is to ensure 
that international responses are appropriately aligned with national stru uh, structures and to facilitate strong linkages among international organizations, national authorities, national uh, civil society, and other stakeholders. That was <coughs> by the World Health Organization just last year. Wonderful, everything's in place. Well, the second half of the statement says, however, the, the 2010 Haiti response suggests that many of the same problems continue and that there are significant limitations such as inconsistent attendance, poor dissemination of information, and a perceived lack of benefits to providers and victims. So we're kind of still in the same place. Why? Why is this? Well, uh, chiefly because there aren't that many disasters happening sequentially one right after the other, right? And so while you're pouring all this, these funds and these efforts into these organizations to be prepared for disaster, no disaster happens. And sometimes that money has to be redirected into other things that are more, uh, you know, that, that are more urgent at the moment. And all of a sudden, a disaster happens. We're back at square one. Yes. Yeah, and you know what, this is, this is an article, this is an article um, in a secular uh, journal. So you have to think that people go to disaster relief scenarios or scenes uh, and relief efforts to get something out of it. You understand what I mean? Like, like what did you get out of it? Because people like to go on mission trips, especially when you go on a, a, a humanitarian effort to see what experience I can get out. I'm going to go on that trip to do cleft lips because I don't do cleft lips back in the United States. So you're going there with the effort not to give, you're going to get something out of it, some experience. So there's some of that sentiment that I didn't really get anything out of it, any training, any experience. <clears throat> all right. So all of that, so I can share with you what your role as a healthcare provider is in disaster relief. Hang with me. I'm on my, my last few slides. <clears throat> so a disaster happens. Bam. What can you do? Well, you got to find the time, the time from school, the time from your private practice. You just can't pick up and go. Usually there's patients that depend on you, so on and so forth. So you need to decide to what extent can I get involved? Can I get involved? Uh, can I get involved indirectly uh, through funds, through support for uh, another organization that's going, even if I can't go? <clears throat> Number two, get informed. You know, who's, who's involved in the primary and secondary uh, assessment? And are they reputable? You have no idea how many times you hear an anecdote from this group. Oh, don't go. All the needs are already met. You don't have to go. Everything's taken care of. Save your money. You know, I'm so glad I didn't listen to those. You know, because the need is still there today if you decided to go today. And often, we're not just talking about Haiti. I'm trying to, trying to give you the, the, the overall perspective. This is the same situation that happens in all disaster situations, you know? This is the same thing that happens. There's still need month after all the hype and all the, you know, the, the media attention is gone. So make sure that you're getting your information about the needs over in that, in that particular place. And are they reputable? Do they have people? They have on-site logistic people that are giving you current information. <clears throat> Get a team together. There is safety in numbers, corporate efforts, materials, and funding. Um, <clears throat> Candy Joratag, 
um, as well as uh, as David. Now, David David's trip uh, has been going on. You know, David's was a was a mission trip that turned into disaster relief mission trip as well because he'd been going to Haiti every year with a group. Um, so, and, and by the way, that trip is still available for those of you who are interested uh, this March, February, March. So keep that in mind, <clears throat> the, the need persists. Um, get a team together, you know. Candy had everything, like she thought of everything. And there's some people that are born for this, I am not. She had every detail covered, you know, from where are you gonna get water? What, are you, what is your exit strategy? And I, and I have that there down, down lower on the list here. Um, What's your exit strategy? What happens if you go to Haiti and then something happens, violence happens, how are you going to get out of the country? Can you get into Dominican Republic? Do you have a contact in Dominican Republic? You know, you have to think about those things. Uh, get support from an organization. And this is, you know, as AMEN members, call us. Okay? Call us. Because we team up with Axe World Relief. We team up with ADRA, Loma Linda, ACS, whoever is on site, we team up. We're not a disaster relief agency, but we like to provide our members with opportunities to get involved with, uh, with whatever is going on in the way of relief. So call us, feel free. Uh, Ricky here is our, our, uh, um, our missions coordinator, okay? And I am the uh, director of missions, so call us. And if we know something, we'll let you know. We'll tell you who's involved, who to contact, uh, so that you can get right into it. And again, we talked about <clears throat> getting an exit strategy, a contingency plan. Is it safe to go right now? And if I go, can I get out? Um, how long are you going to go for? You, you have to think about those things because there are still people here in these United States that are going to need you, your patients, your family, so on and so forth. You have to think about those. <clears throat> Be prepared. Personal items. Make sure you have things that you, know, that you need to subsist because sometimes you can't find them there and educate yourself. And I remember when, when we got there, the, 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 the plan was to stick together. Okay. Get to our site and don't, don't get diverted or distracted. And there's still people that were getting there thinking this is a mission trip. And so the, the, the thing was to get through the airport, uh, with your luggage in hand, get on the bus and let's go. But there were people in our group saying, no, I want to talk Creole with the, with, the, with the locals. Well, you start talking Creole with the locals, which is not part of the plan because you're on a mission. You have a directive. And so, you know, they start amassing a group of people. All oh, these people are, they must have money. They, they want to communicate with us. And sure enough, I mean, when, when it was time to get on that bus, I mean, this, this particular couple had an issue trying to, trying to grab their, their, their luggage get on the bus because all the locals wanted to help them and then get paid for it. So when they were given, you know, a couple bucks, you know, that was offensive because it was a group of 10 of them. How do you break that up? So anyway, things to think about. Okay. Uh, be flexible. This is not about you. Like we said, this is about the people. All right. This is about the people, even though, you know, you may have gone on a mission trip where you got a warm, fuzzy feeling. So that was great. Oh, I loved it. The people loved me and I loved them. Be creative. Um, there is often many ways to do the same thing. And often many of those different ways of doing it are by the locals that teach you. Your way is not the only way. 
be open-minded. Don't tell them this is not the way, you know, be sensitive, be culturally sensitive. And that comes part, uh, in part with, with educating yourself. And again, be, be thick skinned. You may not get the warm, fuzzy feeling you're seeking, but this shouldn't be why you are there. Be ready to do whatever is necessary. Okay. Again, uh, I have friends when I came back and I told them that I had to lay pipe through, uh, through excrement infested fields who were, uh, who said, I would never do that. You know, do whatever's necessary to alleviate human suffering. That's why you went. Be ready to work with locals. We talked about that. Be like Jesus. Think about that when you're there. Put yourself in the situation where, where, you know, these, <laughs> think about what Jesus would do. I hate that sounds really, uh, really cliche, but you sometimes have to step back and think, what would Christ do in such, a, in such a situation? Be ready to return when the hype is over, but the need persists. So this is why we're still inviting you to Haiti in February uh, with Dr. Catalano. <clears throat> Lessons learned. Again, some of these are repeat things. Be prepared to do whatever is necessary. Uh, teach the victims to fish. Okay? Better to, give them a, uh, better to give them a fish or teach them to fish? Teach them to fish. Teach them to take care of themselves. Teach them to, to, to fend for themselves. Teach them to grow stuff. Teach them to, to bathe, to, 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 to take care of their food and choose, choose to, to, to whatever extent they can to take care of themselves uh, uh, nutritionally uh, the best way they can, to keep their food clean, to get, you know, keep your animals away from your food sources. Uh, get your information from a reputable source. Again, sometimes there are no reputable sources. And the only way of knowing is by going. You might have to make that decision. Pray about it um, <clears throat> and, uh, and move upon uh, whatever inspiration God puts upon your heart. And again, don't go for that warm, fuzzy feeling. You may never get it. Safety in numbers, significant spiritual impact often necessitates a sustained presence after the disaster is long forgotten. And ultimately, that's why we're there. We're there so that Christ could reign. Amen. And so in a disaster situation, it's much more intense. It's much more surgical compared to primary care. So you got to be a little more aggressive to, to get in there and make an impact and make a difference and repeat the effort so that uh, eventually someone can go in there and preach an evangelistic campaign and actually reach the people. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.